Welcome to Film Studies Bling Bling. My name is Anna Louise, I'm a film scholar and I produce this podcast. In this issue, we will first meet Sarah Maidan. She is an expert on both open science and open access. Sarah Maidan is my Bling of the Month. In the news section, I would like to draw your attention to a newly published book. It is called Update, Film und Mediengeschichte im Zeitalter der digitalen Reproduzierbarkeit. I had the pleasures of conversing with the author Franziska Heller about the new publication. This conversation will also be about open access. In my dear diary, I'm, like last time, not alone. I've asked Francesco Bono from the University of Perugia in Italy to talk to me about the effects of the corona crisis on teaching and research. Here's my bling of the month. Sarah Maidan. Hello, Sarah. Hey, Anna-Luise. Thanks for being part of my podcast. First, tell us how you got into science. What is your area of research and where are you based? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. And um, well, I'm currently I'm based at Philips University Marburg. And my teaching and research areas include digital media practices, film historiography, audiovisual aesthetics, open science and feminist theory. And in my current postdoc project, Aesthetics of Access, I explore how digital technologies shape our understanding of film history. This means I analyze how we make use of digital tools for presenting research on women's work in early film industries. So I'm especially interested in the potentials of data visualizations in this context. But before I got into science, I worked as a journalist for many years. I actually wanted to become a famous film critique when I was a student. Um, but when I took a film studies class on aesthetics and affect with Hermann Kappelhoff at Freie University Berlin, where I did my magistra, I realized how exciting studying can actually be. Because in this class, it was all about grasping theoretical concepts together and exchanging our views on montage and close-ups, Krakauer, Balash and others. And these lively discussions made me decide to continue research on a professional level. I think it was in the fifth semester or so. But yeah, of course, this wasn't as easy as I hoped for to get into science because I applied for PhD grants, but wasn't successful. And also there weren't any jobs at the university at the time. So after graduation, I worked in media industries for a while. And I was really happy when I got the job as a researcher at Freie University Berlin, which allowed me to do my PhD in a very exciting environment. True to your very, very interesting background and research interest, you founded uh, OA Books, a publisher for open access scientific work, and you initiated the Open Media Studies blog and the Open Media Studies Scholarly Interest Group. But let us stay with your publisher for now. What is its publishing profile and what has been published there so far? Well, I founded OA Books in 2016 when I was looking for a way to best present and disseminate my research. I did my dissertation on aesthetic experience, feminist theory and chick flicks, 
And after I finished my dissertation, I was looking for a way to publish my work in a very specific manner. I wanted to have a digital as well as printed version so that readers could use it in various ways. And I also wanted to include film clips, not just stills, film images, because I did a couple of close readings. I wanted to show the films I was talking about to the audience. And I also wanted to keep the copyrights in German Nutzungsrechte in order to do whatever I wanted with my work and also allow others to use it without any barriers. But at that time, five or six years ago, there was no possibility for publishing a German book in this way. So I had to create OA Books, which is a publishing project for hybrid open access publications, which met all my needs I just talked about. And so far, I published two books with OA Books. First of all, my dissertation, which I later translated into English and also published with Paul Graf Macmillan. And then the second book came out last year. It is Roger Audin's Communication Spaces, the first German book of Roger Audin, translated and edited by my colleagues Guido Kirsten, Magali Krautmann, Philipp Blum and Laura Katharina Mücke. And both books are published under a Creative Commons license and can thus be freely reused. They are available at no costs as PDF, a digital version, and I think for a very reasonable price as print-on-demand. And in addition to open access, it is important for me that OA books are appealing both content-wise and design-wise. That's why I pay much attention to the language, the layout, as well as the cover. And according to LOCKS, L-O-C-K-S-S, lots of copies keep stuff safe. Or A-Books copies are available on various platforms, which is also an important issue for me. And I mentioned already you are curating the Open Media Studies blog together with Elena Strohmeyer. Tell us about the blog. Why is there a need for a blog dealing with open science, especially in media and film studies? Well, first, OA Books was an individual blog where I myself reflected on the economical, cultural, social, technological and legal aspects of the scholarly publishing system. And then OA Books has become also a publishing project, as I just described. But when I was a fellow of the Open Knowledge Program of Wikimedia, Stifterverband and Volkswagen Foundation, I realized that there was a need for a broader blog project in order to include the whole community. And then I came up with the idea of the Open Media Studies blog. The blog is a collaboration with the German Journal for Media Studies, Zeitschrift für Medienwissenschaft. And the goal is to promote the discourse on open science in the humanities. And the blog also appears on the Megalab blog, Hypothesis or Hypothese, based in, um, in Paris. And the Open Media Studies blog serves as a platform for film and media studies scholars to reflect on their own research practices with respect to openness in a low-threshold manner. Every format is possible and also everyone is welcome to participate. On a bi-weekly basis, a post is published on the blog. 
And so far, there have been about 50 posts written by about 40 different colleagues, mostly in German, but also in English. And this month, the Open Media Studies blog celebrates its second birthday. And I'm very happy and proud and also surprised that so many colleagues are participating in the blog and that it has been acknowledged in the community very quickly. Well, congratulations on that Thank uh, you. beautiful <laughs> birthday. <laughs> Let us take a step back and define what open science is. What principle is at stake here? What is open science and what does this new scientific, I would say, culture imply? This is a really important and good question. It's actually worth an extra episode, I believe, or even an extra podcast. Uh, well, let's try to make it short. In my view, open science means to take advantage of new technologies in order to make science more accessible in terms of production, dissemination, and also communication of knowledge. For me, open science also means to re reflect on existing scholarly practices and challenge the current academic system. In the open science community, There's a discussion about whether open science just means good science or regular science, uh, meaning to work for the benefit of the scientific community, and that poor academic practices such as non-transparent research or for profit publishing should be rather defined as closed science. To some extent, I agree with this view, however not only from a media studies perspective, I think that the discourse about open science is strongly connected to the increasing digitalization, which in my view can help scholarship to become more open in many ways. For example, by setting up digital repositories or archives, enabling open peer review, involving in collaborative book sprints, using social media, or by producing web documentaries or data visualizations or a podcast. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Although um, open access is only one aspect of the practice of open science, it is extremely important, I would say. What possibilities are there for open access publishing, especially for film scholars? I mean, you mentioned that only a few years ago, it was very difficult for you to publish your work open access so that it met all your ideas, how the book should in the end look like. So how is the situation now and what kind of possibilities, especially film scholars have? Open access means to make scholarly work freely accessible to the public. And the advantage is that Open access increases the visibility of scholarly work and extends their outreach even beyond academia. So especially in times now where people feel a large divide between science and the society, I think it is important to communicate scholarly work and make it as comprehensible as possible. But I think it's not sufficient to just publish articles online But if you want to reach a broad audience, you have to take into account where you can reach people and how. So I think, especially as film and media scholars, we should be less concerned with publications, but instead focus on scholarly communication. 
This is why I experimented with so many different formats. With my dissertation, I wanted to see which kind of written research is reaching what kind of audience. So I think it's all about experimenting with different forms of scholarly communication. However, I think we need also to consider open access in terms of knowledge production, not only dissemination. The questions are, who has access to scholarly discourses? Whose voices are heard? And whose voices are silenced? And what do we even acknowledge as scientific knowledge? There's a lot of interesting work out there in academia and film and media studies, but mostly we tend to stick with canonical works. So I think basically we need more diversity and plurality in academic discourses in addition to what we call open access publications. We talk now about the the advantages and you mentioned so many good things I really can underline and I agree with. And, and I mean, I feel or I want to be part of this um, new open scientific culture. But nevertheless, let, let us talk also about what are the disadvantages? Why would scholars be inclined to avoid open access? Do you do you see disadvantages or does they do not exist for you? Yeah, I, I see both advantages and disadvantages when it comes to open access. I would say when I started OA Books, I was really a strong advocate for open access. But during the years when I did more research on open science, open science culture and openness and on all what comes with it, uh, what is connotated with open science, I have become more critical. So my main concern today is who benefits from open access, considering how open access has been implemented in the current publication system. How is scholarly publishing organized today? Given the possibilities of digital technologies, it is interesting to observe that most scholars stick with traditional publishing houses and traditional publishing procedures. For example, the publishing process, from writing an abstract to publishing the final paper, can take months, sometimes years. But preprints are still rarely considered a legitimate option in film and media studies, even though preprints allow us to get scholarly work out sooner and receive diverse and fast feedback. And also, there have been innovative scholarly publishing initiatives such as Mison Press, But some colleagues feel reluctant to work with them because they fear for their reputation. They prefer well-established publishing houses instead. But open access publications with well-establishing publishing houses, such as Elsevier, Springer or De Greuther, are quite expensive. The so-called APCs, Article Processing Charges, or BPCs, Book Processing Charges, are about 2,000 or 3,000 euro or even 10 of 15,000 euro per publication. But I wonder who can afford to pay such a great deal of money? Scholars who work in well-funded research projects or at well-funded universities. And who benefits from these open access fees? Global players who are interested in increasing profit, not access. Thus, open access doesn't necessarily mean to make scholarship more open 
in terms of participation and diversity. On the contrary, it can even reinforce inequalities. It seems to me that the current crisis has clearly demonstrated the necessity for the open and free provision of knowledge, but maybe also underlines these kinds of aspects you outlined. Machtgefälle werden offensichtlicher in this crisis. As an expert in this field, how do you see this? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I share your observation. The necessity of open access in terms of freely available research has become quite obvious. It was remarkable to see how quickly scholarly publishers were to make their portfolios freely available online. And also newspapers suspended their paywalls for corona-related content. This was quite amazing. But once again, the question is, who profits from open access? And to me, it seems that in the scholarly sector, the publishers were pressured to do so, to open up, once a few started this initiative. And of course, it's also good marketing. But let's not forget that the paywalls are only suspended for a certain amount of time. In the long run, I don't think that the corona crisis will have a significant effect on the current publishing system. Perhaps with regard to open educational resources, OER, since scholars have begun to realize the practical advantages of freely available contents and tools. But if we keep focusing on reputation and the quantity of publications and grants instead of implementing a so-called sharing factor, as Heinz Pampel and Sonia Dalmeier-Thiesen suggested, the kind of openness we experience in times of corona will vanish at some point. And when it comes to Machtgefälle, inequalities, to knowledge production, then again, it is worrying to hear that it seems to be mostly men who are still able to publish articles, even more articles than before whereas women are taking care of the children and the household. So it seems that women are suffering the greatest disadvantages right now in times of crisis. Yeah, that's why it's so, so important to have young researchers, as you, Sarah, offering new ways of publishing, being a publisher yourself with OA Books and with the blog you're curating together with Elena Strohmeier, because this opens up new perspectives, I'm 100% sure, for, for other young researchers and especially female researchers to find new ways in the sense of open science um, to publish in this scientific culture of openness. So I find your example and all the work you do very encouraging. So thank you, Sarah, for that brief conversation. In the chapter marks of the podcast, you will find the links to Sarah's publisher, OA Books, and to the Open Media Studies blog. You can also find the corresponding links on my website. Just search for filmische-stadt.projekte-filmuni.de under podcast. Yeah, in closing, Sarah, is there anything in particular you would like to share with the film science community listening to this podcast regarding open science? Well, perhaps some rather fundamental remarks that in order to foster a creative and inclusive open scholarly culture, we need to ask ourselves some very fundamental questions such as why are we doing our job? Who should benefit from scholarship? What are our values? And let's not forget 
why we actually got into science in the first place. This is the news section. Recently, the book Update, Film und Mediengeschichte im Zeitalter der digitalen Reproduzierbarkeit, which I would roughly translate as Update, Film and Media History in the Age of Digital Reproducibility, was published by Wilhelm Fink in Open Access. I'm very happy to have the chance to talk now with the film scholar and author of that book, Franziska Heller. Hello, Franziska. Thank you for having me. Hello. It's a pleasure. Franziska, we have both known each other for quite a while, primarily through the meetings at the GFF and Next conferences. Now we're even closer, so to speak, because in addition to your work at the University of Zurich, where you habilitated, you're currently a visiting professor at the Film University. You hold a Fonte Visiting Professorship, which is a professorship advertised by the Fonte Foundation for outstanding young researchers. First of all, Francisca, congratulations on that. Thank you so much. Let me just say I'm, I'm so grateful for this great opportunity that the Fonte Foundation is offering, because it, it's really important, just as a footnote, that female academics are supported, especially when they dare to go into the trenches of academic life and scholarship. If someone is interested in the Fonte Foundation, please check out my website or go into the bookmarks of the podcast. We have there a link to the foundations. Maybe the Fonte Foundation is a possibility for some of the listeners to apply for a visiting professorship. But We're here to talk about your book, Franziska. Film, media and digitization have been central to your research activities for quite some time. In your latest book, which involved out of the themes you pursued in your habilitation thesis, you examine the practice of updating films so that they remain visible in ever new digital media environments. You examine this phenomenon under the concept of transition, which always involves a transformation not only of a technical nature, but also of the addition of a supplement that invests film with, for example, historical memory value. In doing this, you provide for the first time, I would say, a systematic consideration of the digitization of films as not only a technical process with an effect on film aesthetics, but also as a process linked to ideas of media historical progress, grounded in specific understandings of history and memory. Okay, in other words, to sum it up, you analyze digitization as a socio-cultural practice. Thank you. That's a really good and apt summary, actually. I guess the most obvious distinction between my approach and other existing studies is that I understand the complex digitized films as a perceptual problem on different levels. And to capture the social cultural framework, I'm referring to and adapting the semi-pragmatic approaches as they were developed by the documentary film theory and especially Roger Audin and others who were working on the status of archival images. And digitization as a sociocultural practice is characterized, as I tried to outline by mechanisms of attribution in which film is afforded a specific temporality, for instance, or temporal differences, as well as being attributed certain values. This is a process that models, for instance, historical images, and you describe also that this process uh, models horizons of memory. And in your book, you deal with 
restoration, distribution, circulation and reception of digitization film during the last 25 years. A phase in which the, uh, quote, analoge Filmtechnik auf allen Ebenen tatsächlich abgelöst wurde. A phase in which the analog film technology has actually been replaced on all levels. Okay, so much happened in the last 25 years. Such enormous body of work raises, of course, the question of methodology and case selection. You told us already some words about with what kind of theory you work, but how did you proceed in terms of methodology and case selection? That's a tough one. I've been working uh, in the field of film restoration and digitization since 2008 in different interdisciplinary and application-oriented research project, projects with the film and post-production industry. So um, the first thing I realized was there are so many different perspectives on the multiple problems digitization and film digitization is posing. So it all came down for me to the question from which position are we actually perceiving taking a look at the problem? So what I tried was more like compare different media formats and different phenomena. I followed the discussion and debates in the archival and film historic community closely for the last 12 years. And most importantly for me were the festivals in Bologna, like Il Cinema Ritrovato, and also in Pordenone, Le Giornate del Cinema Muto. These festivals proved to be invaluable. Because here the whole community um, gathered and from all the different disciplinary corners. So I would say I just tried to stick to the current debate and just to gather as much as different case studies as I could. And you clustered these case studies, right? You're working with uh, so-called clusters. What is that kind of concept? The cluster concept is more the idea that you have one phenomenon that offers different layers of perception and dimension at work. So one cluster systematic means that I'm not talking about Earth film, but the film as a social cultural complex with different perceptual offerings, so to speak. And on the other hand, it's also that how do you deal with something like this on a methodological level? And what I try to do is, and also my line of argument is built up like that, to show that you can deal with the problems from different perspectives with different theoretical tools that don't necessarily are linked in a linear line of argument, but more like coexisting. And they're just highlighting different aspects of one phenomenon. And I would say that this cluster approach works sehr gut. Thank you so much. <laughs> It's also a very demanding work, uh, both from the theoretical perspective, we talked about that, and from the perspective of an adequate terminology. By any measure, an eclectic work in the best sense of word, I would say, which is often the case when dealing with phenomena at such scale and across time. What were your theoretical foundations, except from the pragmatic approach by Roger Audin you already mentioned? What were other key theoretical frames you used to deal with the phenomenon of digitization? First of all, I'm borrowing the term culture industry from Frankfurt School. I use it in a broader sense, and I focus a lot on what Wolfgang Schatzauk has done and what he has called Warenästhetik, which would roughly translate like commodity aesthetics. 
But I, as you already mentioned, I'm linking, I'm combining in an eclectic way, but most logical, different um, approaches. So another one which is very important to me is um, Reinhard Koselleck's reflections on the semantic of historical time, because he, he's talking about the plurality of what we perceive as historical time established in the experience between the difference between past, present, and future. And again, this is linked to a discourse and memory studies. Again, the question of experience with a key term, prosthetic memory, where the mediated form of memories is object of the reflection. And again, translate into a perceptual problem because it's closely linked to the bodily experience of the subject or the remembering subject. I know it's a question impossible to answer. I'm sorry for that, Francisca. But nevertheless, I ask you, what are the key conclusions you have come to on the basis of your clusters? Let me try to answer your question, but it will, will be far from being exhaustive. What I wanted to convey is that, especially in the digital media culture, we have to be more aware of where the audiovisual images we are actually dealing with are coming from, especially when we consider them to be somehow representative of film history or some, some development in film and media history, because they have and keep undergoing a lot of transformations. They always have, but now this fact is so hidden behind the digital myth of availability that we can just access every image we want to, every film we want to. So um, that is actually what what my my aim was uh, to raise awareness and also very important to me is that the film image because we're talking about films and maybe fictional films that the film images of the past and they feed now because it lies in the way how they're used now the fictional images and the, the images of film feed now our idea of what digital actually is or how we perceive digital technologies. That's what I call a digital imaginary. And I also want to point at that close link and um, deal with it from a film scholar perspective. Thank you very much. Now we have just heard Zara Maidan on the subject of open access. Your book has also been published via open access. Is there a different line of reasoning when you know that your work will be received, first of all, as an ebook and via open access? If you know it when you start writing, that would help a lot. Actually, that's a very good question. And um, I've been thinking about it a while because, as you already pointed out, I think publishing as an ebook and publishing it in open access, that isn't necessarily goes hand in hand. So open access as a distribution channel just gives a tweak to the whole problem. I guess, and for us as media scholars, it's even more evident that you have to think about the medium you're actually presenting your work. You have to be very aware of the specifics of the medium. And I think in the qualificatory system we have now in the German-speaking academic field, I think you don't necessarily think of an ebook or the digital domain when you start writing your, your monograph, for example. So um, I think there are a lot of aspects to it and special challenges and also opportunities. And also I was thinking beforehand about the problem that it's also linked to 
the question, how do you work with a publishing house or if you're working with one at all and how the workflows there are established in this phase of transition. So um, it all comes actually to the point that I'm thinking a book in media or film studies is not just digitized text. It's not just <laughs> taking a digital photograph of text. It's, you really have to think about how to convey your messages because you're already talking about an intermediate object. And I mean, it's also a question of funding. On one of your first pages of your book, I read, uh, publiziert mit Unterstützung des Schweizerischen Nationalfonds zur Förderung der wissenschaftlichen Forschung. Published with the support of the Swiss National Science Foundation for the promotion of scientific research. I mean, it's well known that Austria and Switzerland were significantly faster than Germany in promoting open access publications. Do you have the an insight into the current situation in Germany? I mean, you're working in Switzerland and Germany at the same time. So would you say that there has been some catching up to do? It's really interesting because I, I spend a lot of time researching the differences between Switzerland and Germany. Because as you said, me working in Switzerland and doing my habilitation in Switzerland or writing my monograph and um, at the same time having roots in Germany, I compared the systems and was totally surprised when um, Austria, as you mentioned, Austria and Switzerland, they're already installed like a few years back uh, an open access strategy that they're not funding any book publication unless they go immediately open access. At least in Switzerland, it's the case since 2018. So, and as you already hinted at, in, in Germany, I think last time I checked the DFG website, the German Resource Foundation website, they're still going like both ways. They're also supporting the printed books. And this is highly political in a sense of how such important institutions as National Research Foundations are influencing, are, are forming uh, the publication culture within a discipline. And you were asking me, I, I would say that Germany has to catch up. I think yes and no, because I don't feel like open access is a leap forward completely. It's technologically, it's possible, but it also has lots of implication, again, especially for us media scholars. So I think, yes, we should go for it because it heightens visibility, it facilitates marketing via the web. But I think the leap towards open access has to be framed by much more thinking about what it means and also institutional support. Because right now, I think if you put just the pressure on the, on the scholars, especially in, in humanities, to publish open access, you put it all on the scholars to do the research, to work on the legal problems and so on. So, yeah, I would say it's much more complex. It's not the catching up. I think it's good, but I think it needs more institutional support for the scholars to realize what open access really means for their discipline. Um, I can imagine that this was also quite a topic for research because in your book, well, it's not only written in a very accessible way, it's also vividly illustrated. And I mean, we as film or media scholars, we really need illustrations in our publications because most of the time we're referring to media products, to films, to still photography and so on. What were the differences in comparison to an analog publication, especially in the handling of archive, film image material, and more generally in the use of image screenshots and 
uh, image layout? Let me firstly just say that I think that most of open access publications as they are published right now with the uh, most of the publishing houses that are in media studies or film studies, they're still going the hybrid way or the hybrid route, so to speak. So you have the, the print version as well on the market as the ebook version. I'm saying this because it all comes down how you plan your workflow. If you're planning the, the layout, for example, with your images for a print version, for me, it's a different thing because the reading behavior in the digital domain is completely different. So again, it's a question of workflow and how you work, for example, with your publishing house. If you're working with one, that's already one thing concerning the layout. And of course, if we're talking images, and I'm not even mentioning audiovisual material, which we could also include in ebooks, for example. And the Swiss National Foundation actually encourages interactive elements like this. It's when it comes to images, it's all a question of legal rights and intellectual property. I really don't hope that open access newbies listening are now uh, scared to start an open access uh, publication. So I would say that because our conversation is now coming to an end, asking you if you have some ideas or tips for open access newbies, where to start when you say, okay, I, I would like to deal with open access. I would like to publish in open access. The best would be when you start writing, because then you think about the medium you want to present your results or your thoughts, your reflection. But anyway, it's it's seldom the, the case. So still, when I'm talking about monographs, I would say um, think about how it will be presented, how you want to have included hyperlinks, how you want to structure your argument, because it has to be different, because probably it, your work will be accessed in a different way than when it's published in a book, when it's read in a more linear manner. So um, these are all things, and especially, again, the images, the illustration, the layout changes. And let me just add one thing, because we were talking about archival material, because that's very important. When you're getting the rights for the images, you have to think of including also the use of open access within the rights you're buying, because that's key element to it, actually. Thank you very much, Francisca. Um, you know, I noticed, by the way, that uh, the title of your book is really ingenious, because now you can simply enter Update Francisca Heller in the search engine and find your book immediately. <laughs> Thank you, Francisca, for the interview, and good luck with the many outstanding projects you are in the process of carrying out. And it's a, every time a pleasure for me to speak with you and uh, to know you as a colleague. Thank you very much. This is the diary chapter. In the last episode, against the background of the corona crisis, I talked to Guido Kirsten about film scholars and social responsibility. Today I'm revisiting the topic in the company of a new interlocker. Of course, the effects of the corona crisis are felt most by those who no longer have any clientele and by those who have had to close shop or who can no longer perform as artists. We admire those who work in the healthcare sector and those who fight against corona in the most diverse positions. But the crisis is also a special challenge for those who do care work and have to work in an additional job from home. Many scholars are currently facing the challenge of reconciling scientific output with care work, possibly against the background of a temporary contract. 
Many not only have had to reconcile research and homeschooling, but have also had to switch from being bodily present to an online teaching mode, and that in a very short space of time. The corona crisis has had a variety of effects on the lives of scientists worldwide and on teaching and research. I would like to discuss this with my colleague Francesco Bono. The interview is in German. Hallo Francesco, danke, dass du für das Gespräch zur Verfügung stehst. Hallo Anna-Luise, danke für die Einladung. Sag mal, stell dich doch bitte gern mal unseren Hörerinnen und Hörern erst einmal vor. Wer bist du eigentlich? Wie bist du in die Filmwissenschaft gekommen? Ah, ja, also der Name ist ja ein italienischer Name, Francesco Bono. Doch die Familie ist eine österreichisch-italienische Familie. Also Vater Italiener, Mutter Österreicherin. Und dadurch kommt dieses Deutsch, das ein bisschen österreichisch klingt. Und dadurch kommt auch, würde ich gleich sagen, mein Interesse für den deutschsprachigen Raum, für den deutschsprachigen Film, also den österreichischen und den deutschen Film insbesondere. Ja, also wie ich zur Filmgeschichte gekommen bin, das ist vielleicht eine etwas äh, längere äh, Geschichte und auch vielleicht nicht so spannend. Und Francesco, an welcher Universität gehst du denn deiner Forschung nach? Du bist ja trotzdem in Italien. Ja, ähm, meine Universität ist die Universität Perugia. Perugia ist eine kleinere Stadt, ähm, im, im, wirklich im, im Herzen Italiens, im, im Zentrum. Italiens, also so zwischen Toskana und Adria, sehr stark mittelalterlich geprägt. Die Uni ist verhältnismäßig groß, etwas mehr als 30.000 Studenten und mit einer sehr langen Geschichte. Also wir haben vor kurzem 800 Jahre Uni gefeiert, also eine Uni mit, mit Tradition, wo allerdings jetzt Medien und Film seit sehr wenigen Jahren eigentlich präsent sind. Und du bist dann der einzige Filmwissenschaftler an der Universität Perugia mit diesem Forschungsschwerpunkt deutschsprachiger Film? Oder gibt es noch andere Kolleginnen und Kollegen, die auch in, in der Filmwissenschaft dann vielleicht mit einem Schwerpunkt auch auf den italienischen Film tätig sind? Also Medien, das große Fach Medien ist präsent. Theatergeschichte wird auch unterrichtet. Spezifisch Film, oh Schande, oh Schande, da gibt es nur mich. Also es hat eigentlich in Perugia vor zehn Jahren mit mir angefangen. Also du hast sozusagen die Film, filmwissenschaftliche Fahne, hältst du in, in Perugia an der Universität hoch. Ich tue mein Bestes. Und erzähl uns doch ein bisschen von deinen aktuellen Forschungsaktivitäten. Woran arbeitest du gerade? Ja, wenn ich jetzt kurz mit ein bisschen Familienbackground angefangen habe, war das auch, um doch zu erklären, einen Grund zu geben, wie ich zu diesem Interesse für den deutschsprachigen Raum gekommen bin. Insbesondere interessieren mich die Zwischenkriegsjahre, die 20er, die 30er, die frühen 40er Jahre. Es interessieren mich besonders seit längerer Zeit die mannigfältigen, verflechtenden Beziehungen zwischen deutschen Film, österreichischen Film und italienischen Film. Politischer Ebene in den 30er Jahren natürlich, das ist auch vielleicht eher ein bisschen mehr erforscht worden, aber es ist sehr viel los, auch auf wirtschaftlicher, auf ökonomischer Ebene, das ist vielleicht noch nicht so bekannt, da gibt es noch nicht so viel wissenschaftliche 
Forschung darüber. Es ist auch ein auf ästhetischer Ebene sehr spannendes Thema. Da würde ich sagen, gibt es noch viel, was wir zusammen, deutschsprachige Filmhistoriker und italienische Filmhistoriker, was wir zusammen besser erforschen könnten. Und in der Lehre, also du, welche Seminare gibst du aktuell oder insgesamt, was sind da die Schwerpunkte? Also ist das genau deine, dein Forschungsschwerpunkt, den du auch in die Lehre einbringst oder machst du auch so Überblicksseminare, nehme ich an, Grundlagen der Filmtheorie? Also was, was genau können die Studierenden bei dir in den Seminaren mitnehmen? Das ist eine, äh, ja, eine gute Frage. Es gibt, wie vorher angedeutet, in Perugia doch nicht einen spezifischen Studiengang, also für den Bereich Medien und schon gar nicht Filmgeschichte. Das macht einerseits meine Arbeit recht spannend, weil ich sehr viel mit anderen Kollegen, die in ganz anderen Bereichen tätig sind, zusammenarbeite, also Literatur, neuzeitliche Geschichte, aber auch Pädagogik oder Soziologie was jetzt nicht mit meinen Forschungsinteressen direkt zu tun hat, aber mir doch die Möglichkeit gibt und auch immer eine Anregung ist, dass man sich mit anderen Themen beschäftigt, dass man auch andere Perspektive mit einbezieht. Die von mir gehaltenen Vorlesungen müssen sich unter diesen Umständen, ist das, glaube ich, nachvollziehbar, müssen sich eher generell halten. Es geht also um grundsätzlich Einführungs Kursen, Einführungsvorlesungen in die Filmgeschichte, in die Filmsprache, in das Bereich äh, Medien, äh, Fernsehen, Fotografie, Film. Und sag mal, Francesco, wie hat dich denn, wie hat denn die Corona-Krise deine Forschung und Lehre beeinflusst? Was funktioniert für dich nicht? Was, was funktioniert? Hat das vielleicht auch thematische Auswirkungen irgendwie auf dich, die aktuelle Situation? Ich frage natürlich auch deshalb, weil wir ja gerade sozusagen gemeinsam uns durch eine Online-Lehre gekämpft haben. Oder nicht gekämpft, aber es war halt schon eine Herausforderung, würde ich sagen, mit doch vielen Studierenden. Ich weiß gar nicht, wie viel das waren. Haben wir zusammen eine kleine Vorlesung gemacht zum Thema Film und Stadt. Ja, wie sind da so deine Erfahrungen, positive, negative, wie, wie ging dir das so? Du hast mir auch damals erzählt, so ein großer Fan der digitalen Lehre warst du auch jetzt noch nicht zu dem Zeitpunkt, als es hier alles losgegangen ist. Dazu ist zu sagen, dass das Semester, das Frühjahrssemester in Italien in der zweiten Februarhälfte begonnen hat. Das heißt, als ja, als noch nicht alles so einen Ausmaß hatte, so dramatisch und so klar war, wir hatten also schon in Präsenz begonnen und mussten dann kurz, so schnell wie möglich, irgendwie auf Videolehre umschalten. Eine wirkliche Zeit, um darüber nachzudenken, gab es nicht. Ich habe ein bisschen die Debatte und das Diskutieren äh, verfolgt. Es war ja auch viel in den Tageszeitungen zu lesen, also die Debatte, die Diskussionen in Deutschland. Das Semester hattet ihr ja vor euch, also etwas Zeit, um euch vorzubereiten oder auf jeden Fall, um äh, Gedanken darüber zu machen. Wir hatten keine Zeit. Wir haben ganz einfach irgendwie weiter gemacht, was natürlich mit sich äh, einige, sehr viele auch Probleme mit sich gebracht hat. Wir haben den Computer irgendwie so benutzt, wie also ein, eine Vermittlung zwischen äh, unser, unserer Stimme und, und unseres Gesicht. Und, und den Studierenden. 
was, was sicher nicht das Richtige ist. Das wird, das ist uns alles allen klar geworden, dass es so, dass es so nicht wirklich gut läuft. Aber, aber inzwischen ist das Semester hier in Italien schon zu Ende. Mitte Mai hört das Frühjahrssemester auf. Es ist kompakt, es ist kurz. Ein Sommersemester gibt es nicht. Ab Anfang Juni gibt es jetzt Prüfungen. Die werden auch alle über Computer, also online, gelaufen. Und jetzt ist hoffentlich Zeit auch für Überlegungen, für Nachdenken. Wie macht man das eigentlich? Wie macht man Online-Lehre? Im Moment ist es eine große Herausforderung. Sichere Antworten haben wir nicht. Ich auf jeden Fall habe nicht. Also das heißt, ihr geht jetzt zwar schon in die Planung für das nächste Semester, aber ihr geht jetzt erstmal noch nicht von Präsenzlehre aus, sondern überlegt eher, wie kann man den aktuellen Weg verbessern? Wie kann man die online gestützte Lehre ja nochmal überdenken oder mit sich da mehr Zeit zu nehmen, um da auch wirklich pädagogisch sinnvoll in die Vermittlung wieder zu gehen? Soweit wir es heute wissen und was heute geplant ist, ja, in der Tat, das Herbstsemester, was in Italien Ende September beginnt und bis Mitte Dezember weiterläuft, also vor Weihnachten hört das Herbstsemester aus, soll auch wieder online laufen. Das gibt jetzt ein bisschen Zeit, bis Ende September ist ja etwas Zeit, um es bestmöglich zu planen und aus der Erfahrung, die wir doch jetzt gemacht haben, einiges zu lernen. Und sag mal, hat denn für dich das auch Auswirkungen auf deine Forschung? Also ich muss ja ehrlich sagen, manchmal schäme ich mich da fast ein bisschen dafür, wenn ich sehe, wie es eben anderen im Moment geht und wie sehr die kämpfen müssen. Ich habe selber auch Beispiele wirklich aus der nächsten Umgebung, wo ich sehe, was für ein Kampf das im Moment für die ist. Bei mir muss ich sagen, ich kann halt meine Forschung im Moment, natürlich musste ich ne, Forschungsaufenthalt ähm, absagen und jetzt muss ich wahnsinnig viel umorganisieren, aber letztendlich kann ich halt im Moment zu Hause sein, am Schreibtisch und lese ganz viel und äh, schreibe und ähm, es ist sozusagen, ich kann trotzdem weiterarbeiten. Geht dir das auch so oder, oder hat das schon auch ein, Einschnitte für dich, zum Beispiel in Bezug auf Archive? Ich weiß, dass du ja immer ganz viel auch in, in deutschen Archiven tätig bist und arbeitest. Hat das, hat das schon Konsequenzen für dich oder ist das auch so ja, glimpflich, verläuft es so glimpflich wie bei mir im Moment? Wir alle, die äh, an der Uni lehren und äh, ja, zum Glück eine unbefristete Stelle haben, das ist unglaublich, eine unglaublich privilegierte Situation. Direkt also äh, betrifft die, die, die Corona-Krise mich, uns als Community äh, nicht so äh, stark. Es kann und es wird weiter unterrichtet, Prüfungen werden gehalten, mit den Studenten kann man weiter äh, sich austauschen über Computer. Es ist nicht dasselbe, aber es geht, es geht doch und das bedeutet sehr, sehr viel. Ökonomische Ebene ist gesichert, man ist weiter nützlich, man leistet weiter seine Arbeit, das ist nicht wenig. Wenn man jetzt spezifisch auf die Ebene Forschung blickt, natürlich, das, das ist anders und da bekommt man die neue Situation doch stark zu spüren. Einerseits könnte man sagen, ich nehme an, jeder von uns hat genug zu Hause angesammelt und äh, ja, wie du ja auch äh, schon erwähnt hast, jetzt ist doch vielleicht auch Zeit, um Material, das man angesammelt hat, zu 
lesen, gründlicher durchzugehen, zu verwerten, weil man häuft ja immer auch sehr vieles an. Aber diese Zeit macht doch auch sehr deutlich, wie zurück wir äh, stehen. Italien, ich glaube auch sagen zu können, äh, Deutschland in, in Sache Digitalisierung. Es hat schon früher eigentlich nicht Sinn gemacht, dass man äh, nach Berlin reist, was ja wunderschön ist, aber dass man nach Berlin reist, um jetzt den Filmkurier einzuschauen. Aber in der Tat, Filmkurier, Lichtbildbühne, wenn sich jetzt nicht in den letzten Monaten was geändert hat, gibt es ja nicht digitalisiert. Und das ist eigentlich eine Schande. Und jetzt, in der Corona-Zeit, wird es ja noch deutlicher. Das betrifft jetzt Filmkurier oder Lichtbildbühne nur als Beispiel. Es, es ist dasselbe natürlich leider hier. Ich muss nach Mailand oder nach Turin um eine Filmzeitschrift, die es nur dort gibt, einzusehen. Das macht ja heutzutage keinen Sinn. Das ist schon aus der Perspektive der Umweltproblematik und so weiter sinnlos. In Corona-Zeiten ist das noch deutlicher geworden. Und da gibt es viel nachzuholen. Für mehr oder minder vielleicht alle Länder mit doch wenigen Ausnahmen sind wir in diesem Bereich Dran. Also ich würde auch sagen, Deutschland ist da auch wirklich, hat noch einen, einen weiten Weg vor sich in diesen Fragen. Und ich wollte dich gern ergänzen, weil du gesagt hast, eben genau das ist der Punkt. Ne? Diese, dieses Privileg, über das wir sprechen, das ergibt sich für dich eben aus der Professur, einer unbefristeten Professur. Bei mir jetzt gerade, weil ich das Glück habe, dass mein Forschungsprojekt von drei Jahren gerade erst angefangen hat. Aber wo es halt wirklich auch absolut prekär ist, ne? das kriegen wir beide mit, ist bei ähm, Kolleginnen und Kollegen, die zum Beispiel Familie zu Hause haben und eben auf immer wieder auf Befristeten, ne, der ganze Mittelbau in Deutschland zumindest, der immer wieder von einem befristeten Vertrag zum nächsten ähm, sich hangeln muss und da ist natürlich das im Moment unglaublich. Also den Stress, das kann man sich, glaube ich, gar nicht vorstellen. Ich habe das ja in, äh, in meiner kurzen Zusammenfassung hier vorhin gesagt. Ne, dass man vielleicht Kinder zu Hause hat, ähm, Homeschooling machen soll, gleichzeitig das wissenschaftliche Paper publizieren und dann bitte auch noch den Drittmittelantrag für die nächste Stelle schreiben. Also das ist, äh, ist sowieso schon eine unglaublich schwierige Situation und jetzt wird es eben nochmal so verschärft durch die Corona-Krise. Also umso mehr ist es, glaube ich, wichtig, dass wir betonen wie oder wertschätzen, wie gut es geht, wenn man eben eine längerfristige Perspektive hat, was eben auch heißt, dass genau das eine Forderung ist, die man stellen muss. Also wirklich die, die wissenschaftliche Qualität, die Forschung sehe ich jetzt auch wieder, steigt in dem Moment, in dem man den Menschen wirklich eine längerfristige Perspektive gibt, die ihnen die Möglichkeit gibt, auch wirklich einzutauchen in ein Thema, eine Sicherheit zu haben und, und sich der Forschung zu widmen und nicht immer wieder von vorne anfangen zu müssen. Das wollte ich nur sozusagen ergänzen. Das ist sehr richtig. Das ist sehr richtig, was du hervorhebst, Analyse. In der Tat, vielleicht auch in diesem Bereich, hat die Corona-Krise aufmerksam gemacht und uns vor Augen gebracht, was ja eigentlich schon seit längeren Jahren so dahinläuft und eigentlich schon seit längeren Jahren, ich spreche für Italien, ein Skandal ist. Das immer stärker, ich spreche für Italien, die Unis, nicht nur die Recherche, auch die Lehrtätigkeit, auf die Kräfte, auf die Energie einer jüngeren Generation basiert, die aber eigentlich kaum oder unsichere Perspektiven hat, die von Jahr zu Jahr vielleicht 
wenn sie Glück haben, die jüngeren Kollegen einen Vertrag bekommen, aber nicht sicher sein können, wie es dann weitergeht. Und das ist immer mehr die Generation, hier in Italien auf jeden Fall, die aber doch die Unis und das Gesamte trägt, weil die unbefristeten Stellen sind immer, immer weniger. Ja, eine absolute Diskrepanz zwischen sozusagen denen, die das, den ganzen Laden am Laufen halten und noch nicht mal für dieses am Laufen halten die Chance haben, ihr eigenes Leben am Laufen zu halten. Also das, das eine bindet nicht das andere an sich, absurderweise. Francesco, was wirst du denn persönlich aus der Krise für dich mitnehmen, um zum Abschluss zu kommen? Gibt es vielleicht auch was Positives, was du mitnimmst? Wir werden sicher jeder von uns und alle zusammen viel mitnehmen und viel wird sich für jeden von uns und für uns alle zusammen ändern. Ich habe den Eindruck, es ist eigentlich gewissermaßen zu, äh, zu früh, um, um eine Antwort nicht nur zu finden, aber vielleicht auch nur zu äh, suchen. Auf jeden Fall ist das, was ich, was ich fühle. Wir sind über die schwerste Krise, über den schwersten Moment, was Italien betrifft, hinüberweg. Ja, das stimmt. Aber, aber wir sind nicht über die Krise weg. Und gewissermaßen beginnt jetzt erst das Schwierigste. Auf jeden Fall, ich spreche für Italien. Also eine längere Zeit, in der wir mit dem Virus zusammenleben müssen und uns irgendwie zurechtfinden müssen. Und vielleicht kommen erst jetzt die gravierenden Änderungen, die wir auch gar nicht genau vorhersehen in all ihren Facetten. Aber wir bleiben optimistisch. Wir schaffen es sicher zusammen als Land, als und zusammen als Europa, ich glaube, das soll auch in diesem Moment betont werden. Wir sind nicht nur national gesehen eine Community und was den Einzelnen betrifft, betrifft uns doch alle. Vielen Dank, Francesco. Bis bald. Danke nochmals für die Einladung und in der Tat bis bald. In the next issue, my bling of the month is the outstanding film historian, film archivist and curator Jan Christopher Horak. We will have a conversation about his blog Archival Spaces and blogs dedicated to film studies research. That was Film Studies Bling Bling. I would be happy if you would join me again next month. If there are any topics you want me to report on, please send me an email at a.kiss.com at filmuniversität.de Until next time!